Two weeks ago, when we last turned to John's Gospel, we heard Jesus preparing his followers for difficulties. He warned them that the world that opposed him would oppose his followers also. They will be hated, persecuted, and perhaps even killed for their allegiance to Jesus. And considering that hard news, we might have expected Jesus to go on to say, so then, try to keep yourselves safe by keeping a low profile and keeping quiet about what you believe. We might have expected that, but that is not what Jesus said at all. He told his followers, you must testify about me. In other words, you must bear witness to what you have seen and heard from me. The world's hatred and opposition is not to shut you down. Your mission is to testify about me in spite of the hatred and opposition. And crucially, Jesus said, as his followers testify about him, they will not be alone. They will be joining God the Holy Spirit in his work of testifying about Jesus. And that changes the picture considerably. The activity of the Holy Spirit changes an impossible mission into a mission that cannot fail. And that's what Jesus focuses on in our passage this morning. He explains in more detail this activity of the Spirit of truth. We paused last time in the middle of a verse, chapter 16, verse 4. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And we'll read down to verse 15. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1084. In the larger print Bibles, 1677. As we've noticed, Jesus has been sharing some hard realities with his disciples, hard realities about the world's opposition. And now he says, if you find it in the middle of chapter 16, verse 4, where the sentence beginning, I did not tell you, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me 
that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is God's Word. And it tells us, the Spirit of truth convinces the world of the truth about itself. And the Spirit of truth guides Jesus' followers into the truth of Jesus. But first, look how Jesus introduces all of this. He tells the disciples in verse 7, It is for your good that I am going away. Going away means going away to the cross and beyond the cross to his Father's side in heaven. And Jesus has just told these men, when he goes away, they're going to suffer. In the middle of verse 4, he says, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. While he's been with them, the world's hatred and opposition has largely been focused on Jesus himself. He's been absorbing it himself. And he's been protecting the disciples from it. But now he's going away, and the world will turn its attention to his followers. And so we have to wonder, how can it be a good thing that Jesus is going away? His going away will unleash a flood of persecution and even death for his followers. And sure enough, that is what we find in the New Testament book of Acts. And that's what these men are focusing on as Jesus talks to them. Their protector is going away. How can that be a good thing? But Jesus wants them to think about the situation differently. And that's why he says in verse 5, None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I said these things. Now, in terms of the literal words, where are you going, both Peter and Thomas have, in fact, asked Jesus that just a little while back. But what Jesus is getting at here is not the question of his destination exactly. He's talking about the consequences of his going away. And his disciples are not thinking or asking about those. They're not asking why it's important that Jesus is going where he's going. And that's what he wants them to think about and understand, which is why he says in verse 7, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That is an incredible thing for Jesus to say. It is better for you that I go away, because it's better for you to have the advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he will not come until I've gone away. Aren't we sometimes tempted to think, if only I'd been able to walk around Galilee and Jerusalem with Jesus. If only I'd been there to see him turn the water into wine. And multiply the bread and fish to feed 5,000. If only I'd seen him heal the paralyzed. And give sight to the blind. If only I'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Then my faith would be stronger. 
my witness would be brighter. I'd joyfully obey Jesus in all situations if only I had been with him then. You and I might think that way sometimes, but Jesus says we're wrong if we think like that. He says it is better for us today than it was for those walking around Galilee with him and watching him do those incredible miracles. How is it better for us? It's better because when he went away to the cross, a whole new era dawned. On the cross, he bought our forgiveness from the guilt of sin and our freedom from the power of sin. In another place, the New Testament says, the Old Testament prophets searched intently to try and understand the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Today, you and I live in the glories that follow Jesus' sufferings. What are those glories? Well, they include forgiveness and freedom and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The prophetic books of the Old Testament looked forward to a coming age of God's Holy Spirit. Isaiah, the prophet, talked about a time when the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. Ezekiel, the prophet, talked about a day when God will put a new spirit in his people. Joel, the prophet, looked to a day when God will pour out his Spirit on all kinds of people, men and women, old and young. That era of the Spirit prophesied in the Old Testament could not come till Jesus had gone away to the cross and risen from the dead and returned to his Father's right hand. That's why it is better for these disciples that Jesus goes away. That's why it's better for me and you as we follow Jesus today instead of when he was walking around Galilee and Jerusalem. Because Jesus went away, our sins are forgiven, we're freed from slavery to sin, and we live in the era when God the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And it's that particular benefit Jesus focuses on here, the presence of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he's called the advocate. We've seen in previous weeks, the word behind that English translation is paraclete. It's impossible to capture the meaning of that with just one English word. And in this passage, Jesus explains the paraclete's work as a convincer and a guide. First of all, the spirit of truth convinces the world of the truth about itself. If the disciples have been listening carefully to Jesus up to this point, not just on this particular evening, but if they've been listening carefully during the time they've been with him, and if we've been listening carefully as we've been reading John's gospel, we may have had a question sitting quite prominently in our minds throughout John's gospel. How on earth does anyone ever become a Christian? In John's gospel, the world generally means the world in its defiance of God. 
It's rebellion against him. And earlier we've heard Jesus speak about the world being spiritually blind. Unable to recognize him. Blind people cannot make themselves see. And so the question is important. How does anyone ever become a Christian? Jesus' answer is, that is a work of the Spirit of truth. He convinces the world of the truth about itself. Look at verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Prove the world to be in the wrong does not mean the Holy Spirit will prove to God the world is in the wrong. God already knows that. The one who needs to be convinced is the world itself. Individual members of the world, men, women, and children who simply do not believe they're in the wrong. This is about the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts and minds of human beings to show them their true, dire situation before God and to show them their only hope is Jesus. And here Jesus gives three areas where the Holy Spirit will convince people they're in the wrong. He will prove the world is wrong about its sin, wrong about its righteousness, and wrong about its judgment. First, the world is wrong about its sin. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong, verse 9, about sin, because people do not believe in Me. No one likes to think of themselves as a sinner. Well, that's probably less the case today than it used to be. Maybe nowadays it's considered a badge of honor for some people. Maybe some people take pride in being called a sinner because of their ruthless attitude to get ahead, their cheekiness to authority, their sexual exploits. But... Even today, I think the point still stands that no one likes to think of themselves as a sinner in the biblical sense of the term. As someone who is truly loathsome and vile in God's eyes. Because their defiance of Him stinks like nothing else in the universe. That's a description of ourselves we will resist pretty strongly. We might not mind a few nudges and winks about our naughtiness, but none of us are keen to accept the truth that our sin makes us genuinely foul. It makes us worthy of an eternity in hell. Only the Holy Spirit can convince us of that. Only the Holy Spirit can cause us to see the reality of our sin and its just and fair consequences. And only the Holy Spirit can convince us that the greatest sin is rejecting God's only precious Son. 
If our culture today has any consciousness of sin at all, doesn't it focus on how we treat those around us? Any sins that we still recognize are horizontal sins today. One person sinning against another or one person sinning against society. But as far as the Bible is concerned, yes, it really matters how we treat one another. But it matters even more how we treat God. And that's why in verse 9, of all the sins Jesus could have mentioned, the sin he mentions is the sin of not believing in him. Maybe at some level, I could convince you it is a sin to steal from your neighbor. But only the Holy Spirit can convince you it's a sin to turn away from Jesus Christ. The world is wrong about its sin, and second, it is wrong about its righteousness. Look at verse 10. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Because this is in parallel with sin in verse 9, it makes most sense to take this as men and women being in the wrong about their own righteousness. In other words, they think they're okay, really, because of the good things they do. Not only do I pay my taxes and pick up the odd bit of litter, but I also cut the grass for my neighbor. And once a week, I pull his bins back up the driveway. And sometimes, in acts of extreme righteousness, I pay a bit more in order to live an environmentally friendly lifestyle. I even give decent amounts to charity, and I do other things that genuinely cost me something, like caring for my elderly parents. So, the common thought is, all in all, all things considered, I'm in the right. I'm righteous. Isn't that the general attitude? I know I'm not perfect. No one's going to say that. I know I'm not perfect, but I do my bit. Or as someone told me once, in quite a righteous way, I try to put a bit more back into the world than I take out of it. Most people might not be familiar with the term righteousness, but if they were, they would probably say they are just about over the line with it. They just about land on the righteous side. If only because they're a degree or two better than that horrible bloke across the road. He doesn't pull anybody's bins in. Or they're quite a few degrees better than that evil person who was on the news last week. Only the Holy Spirit can convince us we are in the wrong about our righteousness. Only the Holy Spirit can show us that compared to God's absolute blinding holiness, our little scraps of righteousness are no better than filthy rags. During his time on earth, Jesus was surrounded by religious people who were very confident of their own righteousness. 
They knew the rules and they stuck to the rules. In fact, they even added extra rules of their own. Jesus told a parable where he described a man who was convinced of his own righteousness because he fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all he got. And how many people today are in that category? Maybe you're in that category. Maybe you feel that your church attendance and your good deeds put you in the righteous bracket. But that kind of attitude is self-righteousness. It's righteousness we attribute to ourselves. It's like marking your own exam paper and giving yourself a very good mark. But because of that, because it's righteousness we attribute to ourselves, it's all beside the point. Emptiness you and I award to ourselves is empty righteousness. True righteousness is not about how we see ourselves. It's about how God sees us. And he knows none of us measure up. None of us get over the line. During his time on earth, Jesus worked to prove the world wrong about its self-righteousness. And now that Jesus has returned to his Father, the Holy Spirit continues that work today. Third, verse 11, the Spirit of truth proves the world to be in the wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Again, it makes most sense to understand this as the world's judgment, meaning its understanding of reality, its idea of the way things are. We've heard how the world is spiritually blind, so how can its judgment about the way things are be anything other than confused and mistaken? Again, though, that is not how we tend to think of ourselves. We confidently make judgments about the universe. We claim the vast, delicately balanced complexity of nature came into being accidentally. And then developed accidentally. We confidently make judgments about the best way to live our lives. Follow your heart, do whatever you want, so long as you don't hurt anybody else. Ignoring the fact that following your heart and living however you want invariably does hurt other people. And most of the time it ends up hurting us too as we shipwreck our lives and our relationships. We confidently make judgments about Jesus Christ. That he wasn't really God in the flesh, he was just a very nice man who did good things and taught some helpful things, ignoring the fact that a man who claims to be God but isn't God cannot be a very nice man. We confidently make the judgment that all religions are the same, really, ignoring the fact that they say opposite and contradictory things. That's just the start of a list that we could carry on with all day. We may believe as human beings that our judgment about the way things are is right on the money, but according to the Bible, 
our judgment is badly mistaken and morally perverse. And it's that way because our first ancestors listened to Satan, the prince of this world, who is a liar to the core. And we've all been listening to him ever since. Only the Holy Spirit can convince us we've got the wrong end of the stick about reality. That all the time we've been congratulating ourselves on our great wisdom and insight, we've actually been following the guidance of one who stands condemned as a liar and deceiver. Only the Holy Spirit can convince us of that. And it is a marvelous act of grace on God's part that he sent the Holy Spirit to convince us. The Holy Spirit does not come to crush and destroy men and women. He comes to convince men and women they are in the wrong. So they'll acknowledge the true ugliness of their sin. So they'll acknowledge the emptiness of what they try to hold up as righteousness. So they'll acknowledge they've been living with a wrong judgment about reality. The Holy Spirit comes so men and women will acknowledge they're in the wrong about those things and turn from those things to Jesus for forgiveness and life. The Holy Spirit's work to convince the world of the truth about itself is a gracious work that brings people to Jesus. It's a work of mercy. And so if you are becoming aware of your sin and your empty righteousness and your mistaken judgment about the way things are, don't despair about that. Come to Jesus. Be forgiven of your sin. Receive true righteousness as a gift from him. Begin to make accurate judgments about right and wrong and what's truly significant and valuable. The Holy Spirit is showing you you are in the wrong, not to crush you, but to bring you to Jesus. And remember, the background to this passage is Jesus' statement that his followers must testify about him. And here we have Jesus' assurance that the arrival of the Spirit is primarily connected to that mission of testifying. The Spirit comes to make that mission a success. As we commit ourselves to testify through our lives and our words, we do it with confidence. We know that we cannot change a single heart or mind. That's the truth. It is beyond our ability to do that. But we have Jesus' assurance the spirit of truth will change minds and hearts as we testify. The spirit of truth will open blind spiritual eyes. He will soften hard hearts. He will break down barriers of unbelief. He will bring men, women, and children from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, and from the power of Satan to God. That was the promise 
And the promise came true. The Holy Spirit is doing that work today. The work started on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit arrived and that small, fearful group called the Church of Jesus Christ grew in one day by about 3,000. And the church has been growing ever since that day. As the Spirit of truth does His work. Convincing many of the truth about themselves. Bringing them to repentance and faith and new life in Jesus. We testify with confidence today. Not only because the Spirit of truth is at work in the world but also because of his work among those who follow Jesus. The Spirit of truth guides Jesus' followers in the truth of Jesus. Our time on this will be briefer because Jesus has touched on this truth before. His words in these final verses are addressed specifically to these first followers of Jesus. The Spirit of truth guided them to produce the New Testament. Look again at verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Notice, it's Jesus himself who has much more to say to these first followers. They are simply not ready for all of it at this point. They won't be ready until after the cross and resurrection. But when they are ready... It will be the word of Jesus the Holy Spirit brings to them. Look how that's emphasized in verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. As we've seen before in John's Gospel, this is a joint work of Father, Son, and Spirit. They are united in their work. And it's the work of revealing the truth of Jesus. That's what the New Testament is. It is a revelation of the truth of Jesus. Who he is, what he has done, what he is going to do, and what all of that means for our thinking, our lives, and our relationships. So in verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth, does not mean the Holy Spirit will give these first followers of Jesus the answer to every question they've ever had about anything. No, it means he will carefully and reliably guide these first followers into all the truth of Jesus Christ. We've seen in previous weeks, the Holy Spirit does not have his own agenda. He did not come to draw attention to himself. He came to glorify Jesus by turning the spotlight on Jesus. Specifically here, we're told the Spirit will glorify Jesus by carrying Jesus' first followers along as they write down their eyewitness testimonies of what they've seen and heard, as they reflect on the meaning of what they've seen and heard. 
The Holy Spirit will clarify. He will give further insight. He will enlighten them about the true significance of it all. What does that mean for you and me? It means you and me, you and I can read the New Testament with a double confidence. It's a record of those who were with Jesus from the beginning. They heard with their own ears. They saw with their own eyes. They knew what they wrote about. And we can be doubly confident, doubly confident because God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, guided them as they reflected and wrote, making known to them the full significance of what they had seen and heard. That's the primary application of this. Here's the other secondary application. We can be sure the Spirit of truth who guided the production of the New Testament will also guide you and me as we seek to understand and live out the truth of the New Testament. He guides us as we seek to understand and apply the New Testament. The spirit of truth will not leave the job half done. He did not produce this book only to let it be an obscure and baffling book for us. As we come to the New Testament, and the whole Bible for that matter, as we come to it with a desire to understand and submit our lives to the truth, to have our lives recreated by the truth, then the same Holy Spirit who guided the production of the book will guide us into the truth of it. And I'm not talking about reading the Bible like it's one big fortune cookie. You know, the cookies with the little piece of paper inside. I'm not talking about reading it that way to find out who we should marry, what job we should take, should we buy the four-bedroom house or the three-bedroom one. No, this is about coming to the Bible, seeking the truth about God and the truth about ourselves coming with a desire to receive and obey God's Word. When we come to the Bible with that attitude and that spirit, then the Spirit of truth will open the truths of this book to us. Don't expect Him to guide you into the truth while you're ignoring Scripture. Don't expect direct revelation of the truth. That promise was given to these first followers of Jesus, not to us. But as you read Scripture with care and prayerful attention, not reading it carelessly but carefully, and as we gather here on Sundays to try and listen carefully to Scripture together, as we do that, then do expect the Spirit of truth to be at work. As you and I are seeking to understand and apply the revelation He has given in Scripture. We can expect Him to give light to our understanding. We can expect Him to give correction to our foolishness. We can expect Him to bring hope to our hearts. 
and direction to our lives. We can expect him to glorify Jesus by showing us the beauty of Jesus and transforming us by that beauty. So let's come to Scripture with that expectation and that attitude of wanting to receive from God and obey. And let's encourage one another now as we sing our final song, which is full of truth from the Holy Spirit who came to glorify Jesus. So let's sing this truth about Jesus taught to us by the Spirit of truth. The truth that Jesus Christ is King forevermore.
Holy Spirit, we ask you to glorify Jesus Christ, our King forevermore. Will you glorify him by leading us into all the truth about him? Will you glorify him by blessing our witness, convincing men and women of the truth about themselves and leading them to him for salvation and life? And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.